this Lord's Day morning. Deuteronomy 26, we're going to read together verses 16 through 19. 16 through 19, and because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, we invite you to stand. Because we believe the living and true God still speaks in his word. Moses writes as he is carried along by the Spirit, beginning in verse 16. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. As young parents, Tana and I were deeply influenced by other older and wiser parents who had proven to be imperfect but faithful. Imperfect but indeed faithful parents. And, and during this time, which seems like yesterday for us, that we just had our oldest, Madeline, who is now 14 years of age, but it seems like yesterday in so many respects, those of you with adult children, I'm sure, can certainly relate. And those of you with grandchildren, I am confident, can relate. So during this time, when our children were quite young, we adopted a catchy summary that was used in parenting circles that we were running in. This was found in various books and, and pieces of, of literature. In fact, my wife reminded me of this summary just this past week. And the summary communicated what obedience looked like. The strength of the summary is it was a pithy and catchy way of talking to our children about the nature of obedience. The summary went something like this. Obedience is all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Easy enough, isn't it? Obedience is all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Some of you are thinking, well, can I pick one out of the three? And it still count. While a bit idealistic, right, this side of the fall, this side of the fall and this side of the resurrection, this is a bit idealistic. It helped. It helped our children understand what obedience to mom and dad was, and as a result, what was expected. You see, we didn't want to compromise God's design and God's word as a result of sin. And so obedience was and still remains all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Similarly, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 through 19, 
God helps us understand what obedience to him actually is. In this text, which as I mentioned to you a moment ago is the conclusion of a large section, the largest section in the book of Deuteronomy. In this text, God grants us a summary of Christian obedience. You need to know that we are not interpreting Deuteronomy ultimately as a book written by an ancient author, we do not know, to an ancient people we have not met from an ancient world in which we do not live. That's not ultimately how we are interpreting Deuteronomy. We are indeed interpreting Deuteronomy as such a historical book, but that's not finally where we go as we interpret Old Testament scripture as followers of Jesus Christ. We are reading this work as a book written by God for our instruction today. As Christians, we're reading this book through the lens of the coming of Jesus Christ. And so what we're actually doing is we're claiming Deuteronomy as Christian scripture. And we're claiming all of the canon, all of the Bible as Christian scripture. As a result, what we find in our text this morning is is not simply, and you've got to get this time and time again, it's not simply God's instruction to an ancient people, Israel, as they're standing on the plains of Moab about to enter the land of Canaan. It is that, but it's not simply that. It's not even ultimately that. Rather, this is instruction to us from our Heavenly Father through Christ, regarding the nature of Christian obedience. We learn something about the nature of Christian obedience in this text, a kind of summary, as it were, right? As we talked about parenting, instructing our children that obedience is all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Well, God does something similar here in these few verses. So if you're taking notes, here's how we're going to get at the nature of Christian obedience. We are going to identify, count them, five characteristics of Christian obedience. I just blew your mind if you come to this church on a regular basis. And now you're wishing you packed a lunch. Five characteristics of Christian obedience from the text because I think these five characteristics grow right out of the text. And we're just going to walk through these five characteristics together in summary fashion, really, of all that God has already said, beginning back in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, and then wrapping up right here in chapter 26. This really is a kind of summary statement and a review statement of what God has been saying throughout this magnificent, inspired work known as Deuteronomy. Well, let's begin by identifying the first characteristic of Christian obedience together. And these are a bit long, and so I'll say them a couple of times each, and then we'll review at various points throughout our journey together so that you don't get lost. And if you find yourself off in the woods at one point or another, you'll hear us call out to you, and you can come back onto the trail, all right? First, the first characteristic of Christian obedience is this. Christian obedience necessarily grows out of an already existing relationship with God. Christian obedience necessarily grows out of an already existing relationship with God. Look with me, if you would, at verse 16, part A. So the very first part of verse 16 This day, which by the way occurs three times, either this day or today. Very similar words 
in Hebrew, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and these rules. And so God is speaking to Israel as his people. He's not introducing himself for the very first time through these instructions. No, this is a God who's already rescued a people, who has claimed a people, a people who was already in or who are already in an existing relationship with God. And out of that relationship now, God is granting instruction. So Christian obedience necessarily grows out of an already existing relationship with God. The Old Testament is oftentimes erroneously caricatured and misunderstood as a legalistic collection of rules to be obeyed in order to earn a relationship with God. In fact, some have even posited that the difference between the Old and the New Covenants or the Old and the New Testaments is that the former, in the former, that is, in the Old Testament, Israel had to obey to enter a relationship with God while in the latter, in the New Testament, We are given a relationship with God by grace. This is simply erroneous. It's false. And we've learned this throughout Deuteronomy. We learn it right here in our text. This day the Lord your God commands you. We could also turn back. We're not going to turn back. We could turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 6 where we find the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And these particular words, this is how God introduces the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so before God ever actually instructs Israel, what does he do? One, he rescues them. He enters into a relationship with them and then he reminds them of that already existing relationship. That's the context for Christian instruction, and that is the context out of which we experience Christian obedience. You may have noticed that in this first characteristic, I chose to use the word necessarily. I said that Christian obedience necessarily grows out of an already existing relationship with God. In other words, if you are in a right relationship with God, Obedience will invariably follow. I don't miss that. If you are in a right relationship with God, obedience will invariably and inevitably follow. Put another way, having Christ as Savior is having him as Lord. Conversely, if you do not submit to Christ as Lord, you do not benefit from Christ as Savior. Notice verse 17 with me. You have declared today, Moses talking to Israel, you have declared today that the Lord is your God. That's the relationship. Notice further, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. For Israel to declare that God is their God is for Israel to commit to obeying him. 
Israel was not permitted, as it were, to say, you know what, God, we're going to benefit from the redemption you've accomplished on our behalf out of Egypt from your faithfulness to persevere with us and sustain us throughout the wilderness wanderings these past 40 years and for us to enter the land of Canaan and receive all of the fulfillment of the blessed promises you gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. We're going to do all of that. We may or may not follow your instructions. No, Christian obedience necessarily grows out of an already existing relationship with God. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So accepting God as your God, friends, hear me. Accepting God as your God, being in a right relationship with God is for you also to accept his instruction as trustworthy as right, as good, and as beautiful for your life. Entering a relationship with God is embracing all that God says. And what this means, I think, and I'll try not to get too far off the path here. You can stay on the path. I'll come back to the path in just a moment. What I think this means is that what God says, for example, about sexuality, it doesn't make sense apart from a relationship with God. If you don't know God as good and gracious and benevolent and sovereign and authoritative and kind and merciful and eternal and infinitely wise, if you don't know this God, then his instruction regarding sexuality that may contradict your preconceived notions about sexuality, his instruction makes no sense. And you may, of course, disregard that instruction. But you see, if you have a relationship with this God, if you know this God as your God, whether what he says about sexuality makes sense to you or not, you trust him. You submit to him. I find, I think, personally, I think that we're wasting time as followers of Jesus arguing about these sorts of things without calling people to an intimate relationship with this God through faith in Jesus Christ. Embracing Jesus is embracing all that he says. Embracing Jesus is embracing his view of the body. Younger worshipers, hear me here. Embracing Jesus Christ is embracing what he says your body is intended for. Embracing Jesus is embracing what he says your relationships ought to look like. This means, this means boyfriend, girlfriend, embracing Jesus Christ in faith means embracing a relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend that pleases him. Husband, wife, embracing Jesus Christ means embracing what he says about marriage. It means embracing what he says about the life and the ministry and the calling of a husband and the life and the ministry and the calling of a wife. Embracing Jesus Christ in faith means, parents, embracing what he says about the children that belong finally to him. What he says about 
what it means to raise your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Whether it makes sense to you or not, it grows out of a context in which you are experiencing a relationship with this good and sovereign and gracious and eternal God. You see? That's important. Deuteronomy, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us this. That to know Christ as Savior is to submit to Christ as Lord. And to refuse to submit to Christ as Lord is not to benefit from Christ as Savior. Second, that's one of five. Second, Christian obedience includes internal transformation. Christian obedience includes internal transformation. Look at verse 16 again. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your, what? Heart. And with all your soul. This language is not new in Deuteronomy. If you've been with us, you know this. We discovered it back in chapter 10, verse 12. Perhaps we discover it supremely in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 in the in the text that is known as the great Shema, which just means in Hebrew to hear. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God was never church family. God was never merely interested in external conformity from his people. It was never his interest Don't mistake the Old Testament for focusing on external obedience while the New Testament focuses on the internal transformation of the heart. Rather, I think, I think the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is not the nature of the obedience demanded, but the power to obey provided. So the difference between the Old Testament on the one hand and the New Testament on the other is not that they demand a different nature of obedience. Obedience is always a circumcision of the heart, the law written on the heart, a heart that is replaced, this heart of stone that is replaced with a heart of flesh in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The difference, however, is that through the coming of Jesus Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit, What was demanded all along in the Old Testament is finally provided in the New Testament through Christ. This is massive. We'll get back to this in just a few moments. But it's important for you to see that God has always demanded obedience from the heart. And that is the nature of Christian obedience. And so the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 2, verse 29, the first part of verse 29, he says, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So Christian obedience involves an internal orientation of the heart and of the affections toward God that manifests indeed in external obedience. So first, we've seen That Christian obedience necessarily grows out of an already existing relationship with God. Secondly, we have seen that Christian obedience includes internal transformation. 
It's not merely external, but it is also internal. Third, third, Christian obedience, and I've, I've stolen this, by J. Alec Matier. And J. Alec Matier is one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. He's with the Lord now. But he, he was a modern, okay? He lived recently. J. Alec Matier, third, these are his words, Christian obedience is becoming by experience what we already are by grace. Isn't that good? Christian obedience is becoming by experience what we already are by God's grace. Notice that Israel is already God's special people in the text. Look with me at verse 18. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. That's already the case. You are today a people for his treasured possession. Now look at verse 19. Now it appears that God is talking about the future and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Of course, language that is reminiscent of Exodus 19, verse six. So on the one hand, I want you to notice that Israel already belonged to God as his special people. That was already true of them by God's grace. But on the other hand, inherent in what God says in this text and in other texts, they will become God's special and holy people. They already are, but they will become. That's the promise. Now, we could spend a long time here. We're not going to. But suffice it to say that what was true for Israel by God's gracious declaration becomes all the more true for believers in Jesus Christ on account of the coming of Christ. This is the case with other realities of the Old Covenant. So this concept that what Israel already is by God's grace, they are told to become in the future. This concept blossoms in the new covenant. <clears throat> Pardon. I was thinking, I said, before I got up to preach, now I'm off the trail again. I'm reminded of that movie, Up. Is it Up? Where he sees a squirrel, the dog sees a squirrel. And now I don't know what I was saying a moment ago. I was reminded before I got up to preach. I thought, you know, the last few times I've preached, I've had to cough within the first 10 seconds. Maybe I can get through the first 10 seconds without coughing. Well, I did. But I didn't get through the first 20 minutes or so without coughing. Forgive me. It is East Tennessee. So this concept, back on the trail, this concept, Israel already is God's people. They are told to become God's people. This concept blossoms in the new covenant where we are told, we are told we already are those who belong to God and by God's grace, empowered by God's spirit, we are told to become by experience what we already are by grace. Let me give you an example of this. Ephesians chapter five, verse eight. This happens a number of times in the New Testament, but Ephesians chapter five, verse eight, here's what the apostle Paul writes. At one time you were darkness. That's what you were but now you are light in the Lord. And then he says, walk as children of light. 
He doesn't say walk as children of light so that you can become children of light. You already are. You already are children of light by God's grace. So now empowered by the spirit of God, live like children of light in the Lord. Become by experience what you already are by grace. That's Christian obedience. Fourth, fourth, a couple of more for us this morning. Christian obedience is the design of God's gracious election. Christian obedience is the design of God's gracious election. It's the purpose for God's gracious election. Notice verse 18. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments. Now, I want you to see something in the text that you probably haven't seen because the ESV doesn't bring it out. Other translations do to varying degrees. Look again at verse 18 with me. I think it would be appropriate to translate this verse something like this. The Lord has declared this day that you are his special people just as he promised you so that you might keep all his commandments. God has declared you to be his special people so that you might obey him. Pardon What does this mean for us? What this means for us is that God chose you in order to sanctify you. That's built into God's election. That's built into God's selection of you and his grace at work in you. He chose you in order to sanctify you. A couple of commentators have written, your sanctification is the design and end of your election. And this isn't just an Old Testament concept. This is found throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, a very popular passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, the apostle Paul writes these words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And oftentimes we stop there. But then verse 10, I think, is especially Informative, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Notice, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the same concept here. Christian obedience is the design of God's gracious election. He he chose you in his mercy to change you by his grace. J.C. Ryle who was an Anglican bishop in Liverpool, great 19th century bishop. He wrote these words in his book, a famous book called Holiness. Ryle writes, we must be holy, not optional. We must be. Why? Because this is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. In short, to talk of men being saved from the guilt of sin without being at the same time saved from its dominion in their hearts is to contradict the witness of all scripture. He continues, Jesus is a complete savior. He doesn't merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. That's the good news of the gospel. 
So what this means, church family, this means that if you're in Jesus Christ this morning through faith, if you know and are treasuring Jesus Christ, if you've been saved by his mercy and by his grace, sin's power has been broken in your life. And perhaps another nuance is important here, sin's power is being broken in your life. Is there a sin in your life that feels overwhelmingly strong persistent, you know, those, those sins that you just can't seem to shake? Does it tyrannize you such that time and time again you, you feel that you fall prey to its dominance? Dear brother, dear sister, you need to remind yourself daily. This is one of the ways we fight against our sin. Remind yourself daily that Christ hasn't merely taken away sin's penalty. He is taking away sin's power. One of the ways, for example, you fight pornography is by realizing that purity is God's design for your election. God chose you in order to purify you. And so when you submit to this sin, you're living contrary to God's design, purpose, and end for your election. And even reminding one another of these realities, the, that struggle with anger that you have. And I hear this from, from brothers. It's one that I too can empathize with, certainly. That struggle with anger is fought not simply by trying harder. Sure, that's a part of it. Energized by God's spirit, absolutely sweat and bleed to fight against your sins but do so realizing that self-control is a part of the design for your election. God has built into this thing self-control, and it's contrary to losing your temper, you see? That battle against bitterness, against another. I think if we meditate on this reality, that battle against bitterness is eclipsed by the realization that love and forgiveness is God's design for our election in Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, which is just another way to say it's already been prepared for you and provided for you in Christ Jesus. Now, we will continue to struggle with sin, right? I mean, that's the reality. We will continue this side of resurrection to struggle with sin, with the presence of sin throughout our life. However, there can be and there should be authentic growth as we experience God's design for our election. There can be and there should be progressive growth in becoming more like Jesus Christ. So first, I know it's a lot, it's a massive amount of summarizing that Moses is doing in this text. We've seen first, Christian obedience necessarily grows out of an already existing relationship with God. Second, we've seen that Christian obedience includes internal transformation. God was never merely concerned with external conformity. Third, Christian obedience is becoming by experience what we already are by grace. Fourth, 
We said that Christian obedience is the design of God's gracious election. And what this should mean at this point, if you're taking notes, is you're back on the trail with us. Fifth, and finally, last but certainly not least, Christian obedience is fulfilled and made possible through the obedience of Jesus Christ. Christian obedience is both fulfilled and made possible for us through the obedience of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 19. And by the way, Moses is continuing with this main verb. Verses 18 and 19 are one sentence in Hebrew. If you translate this, it becomes clunky, a bit clunky. So we're going to pick up the main verb from verse 18. The Lord declared today, that's verse 18. Now we jump to verse 19. What did he declare? That he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. So we've seen this. We'll say it again. Israel was to be God's special people in practice. They were to live as God's special people. How? By keeping God's commandments with all their heart and with all their soul. No big deal. Straightforward, isn't it? And then I want you to notice that God makes a promise. In response to their obedience, God promises to exalt them above all nations. This is what he says in verse 19. In fact, we could even translate it as such. So if you obey my commandments, then, in fact, some translations, I think the, the Net Bible, the New English translation, translated, translates this as, then I will exalt you. So in response to Israel's obedience, God promises to exalt them above all nations. What's the problem? Israel failed. They failed. We know the story. They failed time and time and time again. They failed in a similar way that Adam and Eve failed. In fact, by the way, Israel is a kind of microcosm for all of humanity. All of humanity fails. If you obey, I will exalt you. The problem is you never will. You won't and you can't. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Little levity. Everything in Deuteronomy Everything in Deuteronomy, including this formula that if Israel obeys, they will receive God's blessing. If Israel obeys, they will be exalted above all nations. All of these things are fulfilled exclusively in Jesus Christ. I want you to listen. I love this. I love seeing parallels between the Old and the New Testaments. I want you to listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. By the way, when I came here to preach, 
I became the pastor here by the Lord's grace and your vote. Um, I preached through Philippians, had the joy of preaching through Philippians with you all. So if you've been with me these last couple of years, we've, we walked through Philippians, but it's been a little while. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Listen to Paul's words. Being found in human form, he, that is Christ, humbled himself, listen to the language, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus obeys all the way through. He obeys in life, he obeys in death. And where does Paul go? Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, those on the earth and those under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is Paul saying? Paul knows his Old Testament. What Israel needed was an Israelite to stand in their place. God said, if you obey me with all your heart and with all your soul, I will exalt you. They couldn't. So what God demanded he provided through Jesus. Jesus becomes the true Israelite. You see? Who obeys in life and obeys in death so that then, as the Apostle Paul says, quoting Isaiah, but doubtless with Deuteronomy 26, in his mind, Paul says, God has highly exalted him above all things. Friends, what was true of Israel is true of you this morning. Right? I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you need more than than someone just to tell you, look, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do. Especially when, if this is what you're supposed to do, includes how you feel about things. Not just what you do on the outside, but how you feel on the inside. You need more than that. Your problem is not lack of information. My problem is not lack of information. Our problem is lack of ability. And as a result, lack of willingness. And the two go hand in hand in our case. What we need is for someone to stand in our place. We need God to provide someone who is obedient for us and then receives all of the blessings of that obedience and then calls us to trust in him so that we begin to partake of that obedience and to partake of those blessings rewarded for obedience. And that is precisely what we're offered in Jesus Christ. That's the offer of the gospel. God requires obedience and he will exalt you. You can't do it. Therefore, God provides obedience through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And for all who trust in him, now you partake of his reward, but not just his reward. You partake of his power. 
and you begin to experience the transformative power of the Spirit of Christ who now lives inside of you. Friends, if you do not know this Savior, I plead with you, don't leave here without surrendering to him. I am convinced you are here as I am here for that very purpose, to surrender to Christ and to find life in him. And if you'd like to talk more about this, then please stay afterward. And as you leave this room, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there, I mentioned it earlier, there's a room called the Crossroads. It just reads Crossroads above the entrance. Go in there and a pastor would love to visit with you and pray with you and answer any questions you may have and ultimately come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn what it looks like all the more to treasure the Savior who provides what we could not provide for ourselves, and now empowers us to live a life that looks more and more like his life. Augustus Toplady, and we're going to close with Toplady here. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages. If you don't know Rock of Ages, go learn Rock of Ages. But he communicated, when he wrote this hymn, He communicated the sufficiency of Christ's work. Not just to forgive us. That's a part of it, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Church family, isn't that good news? That you're forgiven in Christ? But that's not all you have. Christ doesn't merely forgive, and it's not through Christ that you receive forgiveness merely. Rather, you also receive transformation. You're changed, and you're being changed. And so Augustus Toplady actually penned this hymn, included this concept in the hymn. I want you to hear these words and meditate on these words as we wrap up. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. Be of sin, now here it is, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. That's the promise of the gospel. Christ's sufficiency extends on the one hand to save us from wrath, but on the other hand, to authentically make us pure and more like Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, for the summary of Christian obedience found therein. We're thankful, Father, that you visit us through the person of your Son and by the presence of your Spirit. And we pray, O God, that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and for your glory. We pray these things in his name. Amen.